If you're not there already, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1 that Anne just read from for us. Luke chapter 1. If you're not familiar with where Luke is, it's in the New Testament, then Matthew, Mark, Luke. So a third book of the New Testament, second half kind of of the Bible, and Luke chapter 1. It's on page 855 of the the church uh, blue Bible in front of you. As we, as we step into the Christmas season, or at, at, we call it the season of Advent as a church, the word Advent means arrival, and we are celebrating, we are singing about, we are learning about Jesus' first arrival as we pray for and anticipate and long for the day that his second arrival comes. But as we step into this season, we're stepping into a season known for its songs. The Christmas season is known for its songs. No other holiday really compares. No other holiday even comes close to the amount of songs Christmas has. You could probably combine all the other songs for other holidays and the list would even come close to the list of Christmas songs that we have. Classic Christmas hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel that we sang this morning, Joy to the World, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, popular songs that have been playing over and over and over on the radio stations and in your car and in your house, um, like Jingle Bell Rock and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. Those are really fun songs as well. And then horrible songs like Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer and Wonderful Christmas Time and Last Christmas. Those are some of the top three worst Christmas songs that are out there right now. And there's more I could list, but I don't want everyone just to leave immediately because you're offended. But no matter how you feel about any of those songs, the Christmas season is shaped by the songs. Even, even how, what we expect the Christmas season is supposed to be like or not supposed to be like is in some ways shaped by the songs that make up Christmas. And what makes a good Christmas or bad Christmas is shaped by these songs. Nobody wants to have a blue Christmas. Everybody wants to have the Christmas that's described in the popular songs. But what we think about this season in small ways and in big ways is shaped by what we sing. But before any of the songs I just talked about were written, way before any of those songs were written, there were other songs that defined and shaped what Christmas means and what Christmas is about. And in Luke chapter 1 and 2, Luke includes four songs that are meant to shape how we understand Christmas and what we understand it to mean. And it's not just about how we understand Christmas, but these four songs are meant to shape how we understand our lives, how we understand the world, how we understand God himself. The verses that Anne just read were the first one, the Song of Mary, that we'll look at this morning. But there's, there's three others that we'll look at over the next few weeks. There's Zechariah's song, the angel's song, and Simeon's song, all in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And these are the, the original Christmas songs, if we can say it that way. They're, they're Advent songs. They're songs that were sung before, during, and after the arrival of the Savior when he came into the world. And these songs are meant to give us real hope, not just sentimentality. They're meant to give us truth, not just tradition, because there are four songs that put the spotlight on why Jesus came on why he came into this world. And today, as we look at 
Mary's song, we're going to see this. And you'll see a phrase like this each week to, to correspond with each song. But Mary's song teaches us that Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. And I want to see this one truth from, from two different angles. From two different angles. And in those two angles, I want to see how, how we see this truth in, in Mary's own heart and then in Mary's words. Because we know, as Jesus has said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what Mary is singing and proclaiming in this moment is in response to what the Lord is doing in her heart. So we're going to see both of those pieces. So let's look at the first one together, the experience of Mary's heart. The experience of Mary's heart. These four songs are unique to the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's really helpful because Luke doesn't just come out and say, here's this quick lecture on this this timeline of events. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and Jesus was born. Let's move on. No, he, he animates the story with these songs. So you can see these are real people wrestling with this truth. Now, don't picture it as some kind of unrealistic, uh, maybe movie thing. This is not like high school musical where people are just going about their day and all of a sudden there's like a flash mob and people dance and they're all choreographed and they're singing. This is not that at all. These are people who are experiencing real things that a real God is doing and they're responding in real worship and praise and uncertainty and all of the emotions that go along with it. But as we come to Mary's song, to grasp what she's singing about, we have to see why she's singing in the first place. So this requires some of us, this requires that we know some of the background, and maybe you already know this part of the story, maybe you don't. Either way, it is okay. But I'll just sum it up for you. In Luke chapter 1, God sends this angel named Gabriel to Mary. And Mary's probably no more than 15 years old at the time. She's a young girl. And she is at, in that society's day, the bottom of the social ladder. She's female. She's young. She's poor. In that day, that, that you had no, in that role, you had no say in society. You had no power. You had no influence. But the Lord sends his angel to this young girl who lives in a small town in the middle of nowhere called Nazareth. And Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to have a baby boy. Now, this is not how everyone found out they were pregnant in that day. It's not like, well, they didn't have pregnancy tests. Those weren't invented yet. So angels just showed up and that's how you found out you were pregnant. It's not like everybody was getting an angel to tell them this. This was unique to Mary. Because this was a unique work of God. If you'll just look with me, this isn't the part that we're focusing on. But I want you to hear how the angel describes Mary's baby boy to her. And this is a very unique description. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 31. The angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And listen to how he describes the boy. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is not a common description that everyone gets when they find out they're having a baby. This was a very unique situation, a very unique thing that the Lord was doing. So Mary responds by saying, how could this happen? I'm young, I'm not married yet, 
And Gabriel, the angel, tells her, the Holy Spirit's going to bring this about. God's going to bring this about. And God's already working, Mary, because your relative Elizabeth, who is way older than you and has been unable to have kids for a long time, she's pregnant with a baby. In fact, she's six months pregnant at this point. So Mary takes off to go visit Elizabeth. And if you'll look with me at at Luke chapter 1, verse 39, we'll pick up at that part of the story because this is what leads to what we know today as Mary's song. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. We're going to learn more about Zechariah and Elizabeth next week. They have their whole own story going on. We'll learn more about them next week when we look at Zechariah's song. But as soon as Mary greets Elizabeth, as they see each other, immediately she starts to learn more about what the Lord is doing. Look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Picture this. Mary shows up to Elizabeth's house, and she enters, and maybe Elizabeth is in a different room, or she's out back, and Mary calls, Elizabeth, and as soon as Elizabeth's ear hears Mary's voice, the baby boy in her womb jumps, leaps for joy, it says. Pay attention here to the connection between what Elizabeth feels and what she says. Both make really powerful statements about who Mary's baby is. So she hears Mary's greeting, and then verse 42, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? This is Elizabeth talking to Mary. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. So all of a sudden, we begin to realize this moment is less about Elizabeth greeting Mary and is more about Elizabeth's baby greeting Mary's baby. Elizabeth's baby would come to be known as John the Baptist. And again, more on him next week. But he was the final prophet that bridged the story between the Old Testament and the New Testament. His job was to announce that God's promised Savior had finally come. And even as a baby in his mother's womb, and and I know this may send all kinds of questions in your head, and I do not have answers to them. It's a mystery that the Lord is doing. We just trust him with it. But even as a baby in his mother's womb, he had a sense of who just arrived at his house. More than that, he had a sense of who just arrived on scene in the world. In this moment, I love this this little scene that the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Because in this moment, it's almost as if the whole Old Testament leaps for joy. It's almost as if all the promises of God are finally saying, yes, it's all come true now. Just like we sang, the promises have all come true. Because the one that God's people had waited on for generations and generations and generations and generations 
had finally arrived. What the Holy Spirit guides Elizabeth to say to Mary shows that Elizabeth has a decent understanding of what's going on here. Because what Elizabeth says to Mary, we just read it, but let's look at it again, verse 43. She says to Mary, this is not a normal greeting between two women who are both pregnant and they're celebrating together. Elizabeth says to Mary, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I've never heard one pregnant woman say that to another pregnant woman. She calls the baby in Mary's womb, my Lord. Elizabeth refers to this baby as my Lord because she recognizes that God has sent the promised Savior into the world to save his people, and she encourages Mary for her faith in this promise. She encourages Mary for believing in this promise. She says in verse 45 to Mary, this is the end of their conversation, she says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She says, Mary, blessed are you for trusting God to do what he says he's going to do. As you can imagine, all of this is a lot to take in for Mary. It's a lot to take in. You can think about what she just heard the angel say. He'll be called the son of the most high. He'll have the throne of his father, David, forever. She just heard Elizabeth say that, why is the mother of my Lord come to visit me? I should be coming to you. This is a lot for Mary to take in. But, but as she realizes what God is doing, Mary doesn't end here wowed with herself. She's not like, wow, I, I didn't realize I'm that amazing. I didn't realize I'm on this level. No, she responds being in awe and in wonder of who God is and what he's doing. And this is where we get to her song. Let's look at verse 46 together. Listen to what Mary's response is. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. As you hear the first few verses of Mary's song, do you hear the emphasis on who Mary is or who God is? Do you hear, is Mary talking more about what Mary's done and how amazing she is, or is she talking more about what God is doing and how amazing he is? The focus is clearly on what God has done. Mary is in awe of the fact, not just of what God is doing, but that she would play any part in this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's own story is evidence that Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. God could have found a powerful queen in a palace somewhere and made this baby boy come to her. God could have found a famous woman who lived in some big city but he didn't. Nobody knew Mary's name. Few people knew about Nazareth. The people that knew about it didn't care about it. But God knew Mary, God knew Nazareth, and God knew his own promises. 
And most of, people in, most of God's people in Mary's day assumed that God had just moved on. It's not like they had a, a timer that was there visible for all the Jewish people of the day that said, hey, this, this many days and hours until the Savior's coming. They thought it would have happened long before this day. And there'd been hundreds and hundreds of years that no prophet had spoken, that no word from God had come. So everyone just assumed, most people seem to assume, God's just moved on. He's not going to keep his promises. But then we see people like Mary and Elizabeth who realize God's eternal promises are right on schedule. You and I, of course, don't have the same role that Mary has in this story. But for anyone in this room that has been rescued by God through faith in Jesus, and you've been rescued from the the punishment and judgment you deserve because of your sin, we have just as much to be in awe of as Mary does. We have just as much to be in wonder of as Mary does. When we think about what the Lord is doing here and what he's done to save us through Jesus, is it the natural response of our heart to say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior? Or is it just to say, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I learned that a long time ago. Do we live with the kind of wonder that Mary expresses here? Do we live with the kind of like jaw dropped, is God really doing this? Has he really done this expression that Mary has? I really like the way that, that Tim Keller speaks to this idea. He, he, he said this, this note of surprise that we see in Mary is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. If you think Christianity is mainly going to church, believing a certain creed, and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder and surprise about the fact that you are a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You will say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Christianity is, in this view, something done by you, and there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. I think for many of us, and I'm speaking, if, if you haven't been to church a lot or you're not a Christian yet, speaking primarily to people who are, who are Christians in this moment. But I think for many of us that are Christians, I'm not saying it starts this way, but over time, we get to a point where our view of ourselves in relation to our faith is maybe a little bigger than our view of God, or at least equal, or at least not much smaller. And so we lose this wonder of, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. There is no reason, Mary is saying, that God should have looked my way, but he did. And we can say the same thing. There is nothing in me that was waving attention at God saying, hey, here's somebody who really deserves it. But yet he's looked our way and he saved us. So the reason Mary sings, what's going on in her heart is she is in awe that the Lord has saved her, that he's saving his people and that he's using her to bring the Savior into the world. 
And this leads us to the second half, the second kind of angle we're going to look at this truth from. This is the truth of Mary's words. So we've seen what's going on in her heart. Now I want to look a little closer. What, what's that's bringing out in the words from her mouth? The truth that she sings here together. Because as we go through this song, a, a little bit of a switch happens. You see a lot of first person, me, I, my, and then it, all of a sudden it, it switches, changing from Mary to talking about herself to Mary talking about the bigger work that God is doing. And Mary starts to celebrate that the salvation God is bringing is not just about her. She doesn't see herself at the center of this. Look, look with me at verse 49 and you'll see what I'm saying. Here's where we start to see the connection. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And here's where the transition happens. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary proclaims that our mighty God has done a great work in her life, and our merciful God will do this work in the life of anyone who fears him. Anyone who fears him, meaning anyone who trusts him, anyone who follows him, anyone who surrenders to him. So I love this picture of the Lord, that he is both mighty and merciful. He is all-caring and he is all-powerful. He is intimately acquainted with the details of what's going on in your life and in your family and your situation right now. And he's controlling the galaxies at the same time. He is a God that spoke the earth into existence and spoke the universe into existence and spoke light into existence and is giving you every breath you take right now. And yet he's the God that sent his son to rescue you from the punishment that you and I deserve. It's these attributes of God that shape how Mary sees what God is doing in her life. And and this isn't the main point, but I think this is so helpful Mary interprets what God is doing, not through her circumstances, but through who he is. She sees who he is. She knows his character. She knows his attributes and then understands what's going on in her life. She doesn't look at her life and then try to make up who God is. Two very different things. But we see this work of his might and we see this work of his mercy explained a little bit more starting in verse 51. And here's where I get the language of of saving and scattering. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice all the, all the verbs, all the action words in those verses, and they're all applied to God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. So what Mary says here is that in God's might, he's going to bring some down. And in his mercy, he's going to raise some up. Mary sings that through Jesus, God is going to bring down the full the proud, and the mighty. God's salvation has come to earth, and those who respond with pride, Mary says, are going to be scattered by God. Now, what, what does it look like to be, to be proud with this kind of stuff? Well, two, two different things that are both pride, I think. You can be proud in thinking, 
too highly of your own achievements, your own standards, your own religious discipline, your own viewpoint and opinion on things. That's one way of being proud, that I already know this, I already do this, I'm already good, I'm fine. Or, this might sound odd, but just go with me on this, you can also be proud in thinking too lowly of yourself and wallowing in your failures and wallowing in how weak or how horrible you are, and it's just as prideful because you're focused on yourself. There's no way God could ever forgive me. That's a view of you and your sin that's bigger than the Lord. So is pride. Jesus would later say in Luke chapter 5, he would say, the healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. And so I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus said. I've come to call sinners. Jesus came to save us from our own self-sufficiency. Jesus came to save us from thinking, I'm fine on my own. I don't need the Lord. I don't need Jesus to save me. I'm good. Jesus came to save us from that dangerous path of believing that. And the message of Christmas is calling each of us away from believing the lie that I'm fine on my own, that I don't need him. As John Stott once said, that sin is man substituting himself for God, and salvation is God substituting himself for man. And in our pride, that's what we're doing. We're substituting ourselves for God. I've created the standard. I've come up with the truth. I've designed the whole deal so I know what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false. And Mary's saying, if you think that way, Jesus has come to bring you down, to bring you down to realize who he really is. But the other side of this is that through Jesus, God is going to raise up those that are empty, those that are humble. And we see this again in verses 52 and 53, where Mary sings, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So God's salvation has come to earth, and those who respond with humility are welcomed by God. Those who respond with pride are scattered by God. Those who respond with humility are welcomed by God. So who's Mary referring to when she's talking about those of humble estate, the hungry? She's saying that when you realize you have nothing to give God, when you realize there's nothing impressive in you, that you are morally and spiritually messed up and there's nothing you can do about it, then you are in the exact right place to be rescued by Jesus and used by him. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You realize I'm I'm empty without Christ. I'm empty without the Lord. I, I can't contribute anything to him. And I think this is a really powerful point that we need to consider as we think about Christmas. We all like to be comforted by the message of Christmas. But see here that we have to be confronted by the message of Christmas before we can be comforted by the message of Christmas. You have to realize you're empty before the Lord can make you full. You have to realize you're lost before the Lord can find you. You have to realize you're dead before the Lord can make you alive. And what's even more incredible is that Mary knows that this is what God has promised since the very beginning. This is not new. 
She says at the very end of her song, verses 54 and 55, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If this was a movie, I could see the scene when Mary sings this final line of, to Abraham and his offspring forever. There's just this immediate kind of montage of going all the way back to Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, when God initially makes this promise to Abraham, and then scene after scene after scene, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, the prophets, the minor prophets, all the people. And it's all finally come to a point where God is finishing what he started. And Mary connects all that's happening to her to the promises of the Bible over the centuries, and she connects God's promise to Abraham to God's promise to her. Now, this is not Mary's way of making it about her. Like, oh, I I was the point of Genesis 12. Didn't realize that. It's really encouraging. Now, I think this is actually her way of realizing how small she is and how significant the Lord's work is. That through her, God was finishing what he started centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And what this means that in the, is that in the Christmas story, we're not just considering some sweet, quiet baby who never really says anything. We're considering the one whom, of whom it was claimed that he is the son of God, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We're considering the one who came to raise up the empty and the humble and the needy and bring down the poor, the proud and the exalted ones. This is why Jesus came. So I think you can see from the very beginning here that these Christmas songs, these Advent songs, they're not sentimental, hollow songs. They are full of life-changing, soul-shaping truths that are meant to fix our attention on Jesus, that are meant to fix our attention on the promised Savior who has arrived. It's these truths that cause Mary to sing, that God's grace has come to earth, and if you meet it with pride and push it away, you will see his might. But if you meet it with humility and receive it, you'll see his mercy. And this first song of Christmas tells us the truth of the gospel, that it's not that the good people are in and the bad are out. It's not that the fool and the rich and those who have everything they need are in and those who are empty and poor are out. Rather, it's because of Jesus, those who think they're good are out and those who know they're bad are in. Those who think they're full and they're content are out and those who know they're empty and need Christ are in and welcomed in. This is the salvation God has promised all along, that Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. And it's by the grace of God that any of us realize our need and emptiness in front of the Lord. And this is the salvation that our mighty and merciful God has promised. This is the salvation that our mighty and merciful God has accomplished through Jesus. And this is the, mighty, the salvation that our mighty and merciful God extends to anyone in this room that wants to come to him and follow him. Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. And he's been doing that ever since and will do it until the day his second arrival, his second advent comes.